when the second plane went in, I remember saying this is obviously an attack and the next attack is going to be on some command and control facility. I remember standing there looking at the Pentagon saying, life as we know it will never be the same. Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. This episode is a little bit different than our previous ones in one important way. The story we're featuring didn't take place in a combat zone, and yet much of it, the chaos, the uncertainty, the importance of individual initiative, and more, echoes themes we've heard in previous episodes. On September 11th, 2001, Lieutenant General Robert Castlin was a colonel assigned to the Pentagon. Today, he's a superintendent of the United States Military Academy at West Point, and I had a chance to talk to him about what it was like to be there on the day the plane hit the building, signaling really a dramatically new era for the U.S. military. A couple notes before the conversation. First, remember that you can follow MWI on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to stay updated on everything we're doing, and check out the MWI website at mwi.usma.edu to see new articles, podcasts, research, and more. And also, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, let's get to the conversation. Uh, General Kaslin, sir, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, this is our seventh episode of The Spear, uh, which, because it's our podcast about the combat experience, typically involves guests telling stories that took place in combat zones. Uh, this one's a little bit different. This took place in the U.S., uh, specifically on 9-11. I want to talk to you about that. I understand you were in the Pentagon on 9-11. Can you tell us a little bit about what your role was there, what you were you doing? Yeah, I was a colonel. I had just come out of Brigade Command, and I was on the Joint Staff. Um, just down the hall from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I was in J-5. I was the, what they call the Assistant Deputy Director for Strategy and Policy. Okay. And can you walk us through a little bit on that morning? Was it, you know, presumably kind of otherwise a, a normal morning? And then in the kind of immediate aftermath of when the plane hit, and I guess at this time um, you would have been aware of the plane that hit the World Trade Center. So can you mm-hmm. talk us through kind of what that felt like and what, uh, what the environment was like, what the atmosphere was like? Yeah, the well, it was a typical morning. I think uh, it was a Tuesday morning. Um, I was on the E-ring, which was the outer ring, just down the hall from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on the second floor. And uh, right above the chairman was the Secretary of Defense. And just down the hall from the Secretary of Defense was the Chief of Staff of the Army, the Secretary of the Army, and above them was the same configuration for the Air Force. So all the senior leadership was on the river side, overlooking the river towards uh, Washington, D.C. If the plane had gone in in that area, as compared to where, where it actually came in, it would have been a whole significantly different so that's, issue altogether. That that hallway's, I guess, on the northeast side, and the plane hit the south side, is that correct? I don't know, northeast or okay. whatever, but yeah, it was, it was sort of... It was 10th, 9th and 10th quarter. Okay. 
if you're in the familiar with the Pentagon, you're, you know, more about corridors. And the plane hit in the sixth corridor, okay. almost two sides over from where we were, Okay. I think. Um, so I remember hearing about the plane going into the World Trade Center, not knowing anything about it, what size plane it was, purpose, or anything like that. And there was some live coverage, and I think there were about four or five of us in my office, which is just a small office on the E-ring, and the TV's on, and we're standing there watching the aftermath, and... Um, just kind of wondering what was going on. And then, like so many other Americans who were also glued to the television set, we saw the second plane go in the World Trade Center. And when the second plane went in, I remember saying, this is obviously an attack, and the next attack is going to be on some command and control facility. Hmm. And it wasn't, you know, what, 18 minutes or 22 minutes later that the plane actually hit the, uh, the Pentagon. So if you picture the Pentagon, Pentagon five-sided, so where we were, the plane was actually two sides over. And all of a sudden, all the alarms went off and um, uh, people were told to evacuate the Pentagon. So you admittedly, you don't know why, you immediately realize something is going on. So you weren't, you didn't hear it? I did not hear, with two sides over, I did not okay, hear or a feel a thing. <laughs> Well, it's a, you know, it's it's kind of a spread out building. It's sure. not it's not uh, high and narrow like the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. So because it's spread out and it's all built of concrete, back in World War II is when it was actually built, mm -hmm. um, and it's built by concrete. It really absorbed the whole thing. So believe it or not, two sides over, I didn't hear or feel a thing. Wow. If the plane really had gone into on our side, it'd have been a totally significant difference. And where the plane actually went in is where there was a, they. They had they the administration had decided to start the remodeling of the Pentagon, and it was right around quarter six that the remodeling had begun. And part of the remodeling was the blast windows, and that had made a difference because that's where the plane actually went oh, in wow. during that particular portion of it. Um, and th so I remember getting in the hallway, and, and frankly, I mean, people were kind of panicking because they were running down the hallway. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing our, our um, we have a director, J5, and then who was in Europe at the time, General Abizay, and our deputy director was um, a Air Force Major General. And I said, sir, what's up? He goes, well, we just got called to the chairman's office, and we'll get a report, and then we'll let you know. So we quickly found out that this was, you know, that something had happened to us and some plane went into ours and we were trying to get all the information, what size plane, small plane, large plane, and or was it a, like a car bomb type of configuration, but we knew there was some type of explosion that occurred on the other side of the Pentagon from where we were. Um, and people were running out of the building, they're running down the hallways, and I, my immediate reaction was more dangerous to be in the hallway than it is in my office. So, um, so we knew we had to evacuate and didn't know exactly what, what that was, where we were going to evacuate. We knew that we had to evacuate uh, at this one particular place um, and assemble into the parking lot. And I remember before evacuating, I did two smart things. One is I um, grabbed my cell phone. Cell phones were not as prolific as they were today. So I had a cell phone so I could at least try to call and contact my family. And I went to the bathroom, which was a good, which was a smart move. <laughs> so... So anyway, so we, we evacuated. And when we got out there in the parking lot, um, trying to understand, then the, the deputy secretary, 
was also, I was standing right there when he was being evacuated side R, which was the alternate command post up in um, Pennsylvania. And he was heading straight to sta establish the alternate command post, which I thought was, wow, that's pretty amazing. So we were kind of in the parking lot and I am the deputy, the assistant deputy director. Our, my deputy director is the one-star admiral. I'm his assistant. And so kind of as an XO role, I started trying to get a, uh, accountability of where everybody was and all that sort of thing. We were out there maybe a half hour and then they ever, then everybody said, get down, get down on another plate and inbound. So we all got down on the ground, looking up to the beautiful sky, another plane's inbound, didn't hear anything, but we saw the F-16s that were flying above. So the F-16s were already out there and waiting for another plane. I, I suspect I don't know how that report came to us, but I suspect it was a plane that went into Philadelphia that was heading back to the. So Washington, how long after the initial uh, impact, impact of the initial plane was, where did you get these reports that they thought there was a second plane? The, from the plane that went into the world, I mean, I'm sorry, but the, the plane that went into the Pentagon, we're about a half hour. Okay. Yeah. And so I remember laying on the ground and said, this is stupid because there ain't no plane. I mean, if a plane's coming, I would probably hear it ahead of time. So. I got up and continued the business of uh, um, uh, evacuating, trying to gain accountability. They were pushing us away. The guards were pushing us away from the Pentagon, and we kept going further away, further away, further away. We, I finally assembled because I wanted to see where the impact was all the way facing the, si the side there by a gas station. I remember standing there for about a half hour at a gas station. That's where I had my cell phone. I was nonstop trying to ring my, my wife and tell her, she had heard all about her because she was helping out in high school mm -hmm. and my son was in high school and someone had told her that a plane went the world trade i mean into the um pentagon and she was very nervous and great that i had the cell phone and was able to contact her and tell her everything was okay um and then we uh so we got to the uh to the gas station watch what was going on um and I knew I had a friend that lived in that area, and I was just standing there feeling helpless. So I went to his house, walked to his house, maybe less than a mile away, started getting on his phone and started calling down the roster, trying to get accountability of everybody that we had. And then re report back to my boss, who everybody at that point was telling us to go home. And then they would tell us once we got home what was gonna be next. I said, well, I, I, I said, well, before I go home, I'm gonna try to get some accountability. So I stayed there till, I don't know, maybe around um, one o'clock in the afternoon. Then I said, this is ridiculous. So I found a way, so I snuck back into the Pentagon. So they, you know, they, so they had put this guard, guard force around and I got there, I tried different ways to get into the Pentagon to help out and they wouldn't let me go back in. So I went all the way around back to where I was and I actually snuck back into the Pentagon. Hmm. And once I got back into the Pentagon, I went back to our offices and opened them, checked to see if they were okay, they were okay. And there was about four or five other folks from my office that were with me. So we assembled ourselves and started doing, helping out however we can. Uh, what a couple of they did is they went to all of the different cafeterias and they started turning off all the things that were cooking hot dogs and mm -hmm. things that were cooking French fries and they were turning all of them off. I mean, hot dogs were on that thing and they had exploded, you know, because no one had turned them off, everybody just evacuated. Yeah. And the place was just like that. Uh, so they were trying to do that. Another guy was from the Navy. And in the Navy, you are trained to deal with fire. So he was smart. And 
he went outside, got with the fire truck, he got one of those smoke detectors, and he brought it inside, and then he started going around the Pentagon to see what the level of smoke was. And so we were all working this together. And he went down to where some of the guards were still on, and they had not left, and some of the military guards, some of the enlisted ranks. And they were, they had not left their post. No one gave many additional instructions. The smoke was heavy. He had his little thing detector, and it was obvious that they were putting themselves at great harm, inhaling the smoke, even though they wanted to stay there. So he gave them an order, and they evacuated the building. Otherwise, they would have just stayed there, wow. you know. Um, then he, this was neat, so he worked his way all the way up to where Secretary Rumsfeld was, and Secretary Rumsfeld was having a meeting in his office, and he, <laughs> that's a great story. So he walked into his office, took the smoke detector, and placed it right on the table in front of the secretary in the middle of the meeting, looked at it and said, Mr. Secretary, you are causing potential harm to you and to everybody else here because of smoke inhalation. <laughs> so they adjourned the meeting, and, the, and Rumsfeld has told the story afterwards that he said, this is, the, this is the Navy captain that saved my life, you know, on 9-11. But it was kind of neat. Um, I went into what they call the uh, National Command Center and literally started setting up the National Command Center at that particular point. And there was, we were just scrambling and trying to find wherever we had. And this is, was difficult because they had already told us to all go home. Mm -hmm. And only those of us that found a way to get back into the building were the ones that started putting the National Command Center together. So we first established communications. We set up our communications, set up a command post. Uh, the director of the joint staff, who was a, a Navy three-star, he was there. He was kind of the senior guy taking charge. We established communications with the White House. We established communications with the president. Uh, we were um, then working all the communications for the services, doing accountability, trying to find you know what, what what was necessary, looking for the immediate needs of evacuation, accountability of personnel. Uh, we were also uh, working with local authorities on the medevacs, the medevacs that were actually taking place uh, for all those that were injured in that particular uh, section of the Pentagon, and uh, a lot of the medevacs were civilian aircraft, if I remember correctly, and also there were some military. Um, aircraft from Fort Belvoir that was assisting in the flying as well. So you were coordinating some of that, or this this command cell was coordinating some of the medevacs. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We were well. We we're yeah trying to coordinate it, and I mean people were just kind of working them. Well, I wouldn't say we were effective in the coordination, just to gain communications and gain visibility of what was actually taking place. And we continued to improve our communications and our contacts reporting and and. Other type of uh, national emergency assistance that we thought we were going to need, at least at the, at the Pentagon. And then we felt the responsibility to try to see what we can do at the World Trade Center because we knew of the attack up there as well. So we had um, contacted the state of New York um, and a lot of those sorts of things. So all those initial contacts were beginning to take place. At that time, the president was able to return to Washington and um, then we had communications with the White House as well. And we, can, we, we sustained communication with Secretary Rumsfeld. And we had a series of meetings throughout the day, the rest of the day in the evening. And I stayed there till late that night. And so I spent most of the afternoon right there, not only dealing with my um, deputy directorate, the st strategy and policy within J5, but also trying to stand up the, the National Command Center so it had communications with all the other departments and agencies throughout 
uh, Washington, D.C., and elsewhere. Where was the, where in the building was the National Command Center in relation to where the plane had hit? It was in, it was, so it was 6th Corridor on the E-Ring where the plane went in, between 5 and 6 and 7, that, that, that area. And it, this was more towards the 9th Corridor, the 10th Corridor, but it was in the center of the building. Okay. And it was down at the in the on, at the ground level. Okay. So while so we were is... we were free from smoke. Okay. And we and, and all that sort of thing. We also <laughs> we also had to make decisions on the fans and the smoke because the smoke was really consuming a lot, and even through day two, mm-hmm. because the fires, even though they put tried to put the fires out, they couldn't put all the fires out, and they were simmering, and then all of a sudden the fire would come up again, and smoke would be generated. Mm-hmm. And then we would turn fans on, shut fans off, and, and working all of that throughout the whole afternoon. And at the same time, trying to stay in the National Command Center of trying to gain communications with the White House and all the other agencies uh, and the services at the same time. So at the same time as setting up this National Command Center, you're also sort of linked in with the, the recovery efforts that are going on over there and, and, and kind of... I guess damage control, if, if, if you know, if you can call it that. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I was. No one really was in charge. I mean, we were all trying to help. I remember going out into the corridor in the center there, where the, where there were, there were we had put, brought some bodies. We had brought some other people that were very injured. Um, the medical people in the Pentagon were intimately involved in all of that, providing first aid and then preparing people for evacuation, and then quickly evacuating them out by ground, and the other ones by air. But we would bring the fatalities. I mean, I, you know, I remember watching it. But I mean, all the people that were participating, they were bringing the fatalities into the corridor, into the center, and then some of the injured were in there as well. Okay. Uh, were there were there any impacts that made, I guess, sort of everything you were trying to do more difficult? Lines of communication were, was was that one of the challenges? What were the big challenges that you were facing at the time? Um, the first challenge was accountability, mm-hmm. gaining accountability of all our folks. And we, we were able to do that. And we had our secretary was a lady who had been working there for 60-some years. So oh, she wow. was like a set in her mid-70s, you know, just getting ready to retire. Wonderful lady. Um, wasn't in the best health and physical condition. So we were very, very concerned about her. Uh, because, you know, you once you got into the parking lot, they told everybody, just go home. Mm-hmm. So we had to try to find everybody. Some people went home, some people didn't. We didn't go home and all that. So time, accountability, like said, accountability was a big challenge. A, when, when cell phones, I mean, not everybody had cell phones, and then and even if they did, cell yeah. phone networks were, were down. I imagine that's a challenge. Yeah, the, the, all the cell phone networks were, yeah, they were pretty well consumed because there was such a demand on the cell phones. Uh, the other aspect was, um, <clears throat> do, I leave, do I go home or not? Mm-hmm. So I remember standing there making a decision. I remember walking to the subway because I, I drove in and I lived out in, out in uh, Reston. The subway doesn't go to Reston. My wife would have to get, come to pick me up. I was ready to walk all the way. It's about 15 miles. And I was ready to do all that. And I made the decision, no, I'm not going. I'm going to find a way to go. What am I going to do? I would just go home and feel helpless. So that's when I had made the decision to try to get back inside the Pentagon. Contrary to what people, because I tried a couple times and they all said, you're not going in. I said, what do you mean? We got to go in. 
So I, you know, I've literally snuck back in. And so that was a decision. So then once I got in there and realized there's a lot to do inside, you know, I wish a lot more people had come in. Mm -hmm. You know, then we started saying, well, what do you do? What are your priorities at work? And it was about four of us that, you know, we, we started doing the immediate. And what can we do to help? And we went to all the cafeterias in the Pentagon and started shutting off all of the deep fry machines and things like that. And I remember doing that, running around to all these places. And my friend is the guy with the smoke detector. I remember being with him with the smoke detector, telling people, telling the guys who were on the guard post, get out of here, you mm -hmm. need to go home, go to someplace else. And, um, and then I was in the command center, but I spent the rest of the time in the command center getting the command center stood up, uh, which were the lines of communication. And there was, I mean, there was about 15 of us, I'd say, you know, and I was a colonel. And we're all field grade officers. And we're trying to establish communications with the White House. And we normally have communications on a regular basis. It's, it's just a matter of then of the services and gain accountability. We get extent of, extent of damages. Um, trying to identify who it was. And is there a potential for future attack? So where, you're, where are your vulnerable areas? Where would a future attack, next attack, where would the next attack likely be? Sure. So you're going through that whole process, you know. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, how do we as a military provide support for civilian, similar to how our military is providing support now for, uh, uh, for the hurricane? You know, so we were beginning that whole process and contacting New York State and New York City on how we as a federal government can assist them and, and all that. So I remember making, you know, getting, I remember preparing briefings on to the director of the joint staff on how we would provide, we as a federal government and a Department of Defense would provide military aid to civil authorities in the midst of a tragedy like this. And that was something that, that was a process that you started and were undergoing on 9-11 on that same day. Yeah, yeah, that afternoon. Yeah, we were going through the books and doctrine books and how we did and, oh. you know, who does what to whom, where the lines of authority, communication, all that. Were there... If you kind of situate this event in your military career, were there were there experiences that you had had in your career up to that point that you think sort of influenced the way that you chose to respond that day? Well, um, I mean, well, the, I guess the one decision was stay rather than leave. Mm -hmm. You know, and that just I, I just couldn't see myself leaving. You know, maybe it's your duty ethic that you ought to be there but I just couldn't see myself leaving. I was kind of torn because I knew my wife was really nervous, my son and, and the family at that particular point, you want to get home to your family, but when you know you're safe and they're safe and they know you're safe, then, um, and you know, you, you, it, you, you know life as you know it is going to change. You don't know where the next attack's going to be and how, what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. We all thought the next attack was going to be imminent. So you're torn to go home, protect your family, be with your family, and comfort them. But at the same time, you knew that you had a responsibility to um, respond, and so we were torn to go respond. Does uh, does your experience that day, um, obviously, it sticks with you as a memory? Has it influenced, um, I guess, the way you've undertaken your military responsibility since then? Well, we. What, what probably influenced me more than anything was um, an understanding of the nature of our adversary. Um, we, in, since we were doing strategy and policy, we had the responsibility of developing the strategy for the war on terror mm -hmm. and affiliated policies that, that the Department of Defense and the Joint Staff 
as a member of the Department of Defense would have with the uh, National Command Authority on what those national policies would be. So we would, you know, do all the staff with those policies. So I gained an appreciation of the, the, the nature of the adversary. Um, I gained an appreciation of um, coalitions and how to work together. I remember as we were doing some of the planning and some of the war gamings, some of our coalition partners were there and were eager to partner with us. I remember UK had a couple of LNOs. They always have a couple of LNOs right there on the joint staff, but they and the UK immediately supported additional LNOs and they piled on and helped out however they can. And it was, you know, you're going to war, you know, you're, um, you've been attacked. And when you have partners like that, it just gives you some degree of reassurance. Yeah. And I will always be indebted to the UK for um, standing with a shoulder to shoulder in the immediate aftermath after 9-11. You know, it's one of those things that you'll never forget in this loyalty that is built in the middle of the crisis. How long uh, after that day, how long was it? And I'm sure it's kind of, it was an ongoing process, but was it before things sort of got back to normal uh, in the sense that the building continued to operate the same day? I assume that the day after 9-11, a lot of people still weren't, didn't come back to work or were told not to come back to work. When was the Pentagon sort of functioning again the way that it was on September 10th? Well, the Pentagon never stopped functioning. Well, I mean, that one segment was obviously burnt out. Mm-hmm. Um, they started running spaces down in Crystal City and elsewhere. Um, I I worked every day. I, when I finally got home, <laughs> getting home getting home is an interesting story because <laughs> it was about 11 o'clock at night when I when I finally left. I knew I bought a brand new Ford F-150 pickup truck on Saturday, September, what, 6th? I don't know. 6, 7, 8, eighth. 9, yeah. Or 8. Yeah, 8. So I was proud of my truck. I drove it to work on Monday, and I was in the south parking lot. And since it's a brand-new truck, I wanted to park it as far away as I could from where the entrance is because I don't want anybody to park Thanks. near me or dent it or scratch or anything like that. So I came out of work on Monday, September 10th. And my car had no scratches and it was really good, although I had to walk a long way. So on Tuesday morning when I went to work on September 11th, I parked it right next to the building, as far away as possible from the pedestrian entrance, which was on the other side of South Parking. And that happened to be right adjacent to the building where the plane went in. So I knew it all the time and I had no idea what my truck was going to look like (laughs) because I knew it was right next to where the plane went in. It was one of the most closest civilian vehicles to the point of con- point of impact. And I remember telling my wife, I said, "Hun, I said, I'm, I'm going to work my way out to the car. If I don't get there, I'm going to come back in and call you, and you're going to have to come get me. She said, well, I'll be ready. So I remember walking up to my pickup truck, and uh, and no kidding. I mean, because of the smoke and the, and, the, and the soot, it was all covered with soot. And I couldn't even, I mean, all the trucks and all the cars were. You couldn't even tell the color of your car because they were all covered. Uh, there were broken windows from the plane when it burst and there was a 30 yards away from my truck there was a uh, airplane tire you know oh. and the FBI was out there putting an engineer tape around all that stuff and so even when people were saying some conspiracy theory was an airplane I can attest that there was an airplane <laughs> tire 30 yards away from where my truck was. And uh, the car next to mine had its windows busted, and I said, this is not good. I got up to mine, I started wiping off all the soot, and it was, and for whatever reason, there was not a scratch on it. Wow. 
big fire truck, first responders parking behind me. I asked him, can you just move that a little bit? He moved up, I pulled out, and then I drove home that night. It was eerie driving because there was no, no cars at all on the streets, just kind of eerie. Of course, it was late at night when I was going back, and there not many, a lot of cars anyway. Right. Um, I drove back to work in the morning. My boss went home, so he asked me to come pick him up because <laughs> this car was still in the Pentagon parking lot. Hmm. So I drove all the way out to where he lived, picked him up, got to the Pentagon, and they wouldn't let you in the parking lot. Hmm. I said, you know, so I had to park out in Crystal City someplace that cost me like 20 bucks because <laughs> I couldn't park in the Pentagon. And the pickup's still covered with soot? And... Yeah, well, but all the other cars are still in there, you know, because everybody else had gone home. Right. So, but I came back the next day in the Pentagon. We were still working straight through, you know. Um, what was the atmosphere like? What were attitudes among like, sort of the Pentagon workforce in the days and weeks to follow? Um, it, well, it was try to study going, what it meant to go to war. So we, I remember looking at, going back in history, looking at like Pearl Harbor. What was the aftermath of Pearl Harbor? What was the aftermath of other attacks uh, where the United States had gone to war? Um, when decisions were made, you know, how do you gear up for war? Well, and then the key part to me was what is the nature of the adversary? Mm -hmm. And how do you gain consensus among allied nations and partners? And how do you gain consensus among United States government agencies? Uh, to be able to fight this and we went back to the 1947 50s early 50s to look at communism and how we came to a common understanding of what the nature of communism was like and how, um, you know, NATO, how your allied nations had a common understanding of the nature of the adversary. And we, that was one of the things we in the J5 time spent a lot of time doing and building. Um, so that was September and I left in March, just six months later. I was fortunate, one of the first ones to leave and mm -hmm. I actually joined uh, the 10th Mountain Division in Afghanistan. Right, right then in March. Yeah, right around yeah, right around Anaconda and Anaconda time frame. Okay. Anybody who's had, I think, the privilege of, of working in the Pentagon knows that there's the kind of a special and unique sense of mission, uh, just by being in the building, by working in the building. But I imagine that in the in in those in those months that you were there, those six months that you were there, that was really um, maybe felt more intensely. Yeah. Well, you know, we knew there were fatalities. We didn't know exactly who. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing one of my uh, friends who I thought was one of the fatalities. And I remember seeing him in the hallway a couple of days later. I went up and gave him a big hug. I said, I, thought, I didn't know you, I thought you didn't make it. <laughs> you oh. know, it was really neat. So, I, you know, it was, it's a, it, I remember standing there looking at the Pentagon saying, life as we know it will never be the same. And, and life for those of us in the military, and the duty that we have facing us is going to be extremely different than what we, we know it to be today. We're uh, recording this in your office here at West Point. Uh, there's a photograph on the wall for listeners who, of course, can't see it. Uh, it's of the Pentagon. Uh, looks like it was taken almost immediately after the attack. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? So my friend took this picture. This is, uh, I was standing with him when he took it. But you could see where the plane went in and the collapse had taken place. And on the outer ring, that's where general officers' offices are. And you have an American flag in the general officer office. So this was a Marine general's office. 
And you can see the American flag still remaining standing after the building had collapsed. Wow. So the fact that it remained standing is remarkable. And the fact that it's right there where the picture was is remarkable. And then it was a sunny day that day, but when the, the smoke had obscured the sun, but when he took the picture, somehow the smoke had separating, creating a ray of light. In the midst of the tragedy with the American flag, you got this ray of light that's shining right down on the American flag. Wow, so, that's pretty powerful. So I've taken the picture with me wherever I've gone since 9-11 in Iraq a couple times, Afghanistan a couple times, and, and elsewhere. And I understand uh, you've got something else from the Pentagon uh, here in your office? Yeah, well, I, co I collect rocks in my combat experiences. I got a rock to the Pentagon up there. Oh, wow. So it's one of my combat tours, I guess. Although they never paid us combat pay or anything. So. No. <laughs> so. Thank you, sir. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Spear. Remember, you can subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review. Thanks again for listening.